It's been quite a while since we have gathered together for another look at the defense of our faith, but I do want us tonight to discuss something that's so very, very important for every single one of us, and that is to understand and to begin to see this religion called Buddhism. Buddhism. How many of you are familiar, at least in some way, with Buddhism? Many of you are. It is a very, very strange, strange religion. And if we were to attempt to try to understand Buddhism, we would first of all understand that Buddhism is a rapidly growing religion. Now, I know I've said that for some of the other major religions of the world, but Buddhism itself is also growing very, very rapidly. Indeed, statistics that were gathered really just a few years ago tell us that Buddhism has approximately, and this is true, 314 million, 330, or 939,000 followers worldwide. Now that seems like a stunning number, but it is true. 314 million, 939,000 adherents to Buddhism worldwide. And of course, the vast majority of them are in Asia. 313,114,000. But it's also interesting to note that, and this figure is, is growing, 558,000 558, Buddhists reside in the United States of America, or at least North America. And so it is a very, very fast-growing religion. And I want you to know about Buddhism. We're not going to spend a lot of time tonight going over either the origins of Buddhism, although we will talk about that in some measure. Uh, And I'm not going to talk a great deal about what they believe, although I will read some quotes for you about what they believe. I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about how we as Christians would need to respond to Buddhism if we were to know someone who is a Buddhist, if we had the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I do want to tell you a little bit about the origins of Buddhism. First of all, there is a difficulty. And the difficulty is the attempt to try to define exactly what was the initial origination of the Buddhist religion. The problem is that we often are are at difficulty in constructing an accurate biography of its founder. The first particular attempt at composing a formal biography of Buddhism's founder, uh, whose name is Siddhartha Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama, was probably at the end of the first century A.D. And it was entitled Buddha Karita by Avasgosa. And that was really well after uh, this Buddha figure himself came onto the scene, which was actually in the 500s B.C., before Christ. And so you can see it took a long, long time for it to develop. But let me tell you a little bit about the origins of Buddhism. Since most of the original founding, not only this figure himself, the Buddha as he is now called, but also the oral tradition that rose up around him, occurred over several centuries. And since each of these oral traditions 
have been extant for all of these years, there are many, many different versions about exactly what is the origin of this religion. And it is sometimes very, very difficult to try to gain a grip on exactly what is Buddhism from its earliest days. There is, however, some general agreement among the major adherents of Buddhism that the incidents in Gautama's life and the primary tenets of his teaching are among the most venerated or held traditions of Buddhism itself. And we'll try to give you at least a little bit of a basic outline of the following account of his life. Siddhartha Gautama was born about 560 B.C. in a little town in southern Nepal. Now, if you want a little bit of a frame of reference about Nepal, you know that that is uh, the place where uh, Shannon Eder has at least originally gone and is traveling around in that particular area of the world and, of course, is now in India. But that is a place that's very, very close to that country. And Siddhartha Gautama was a part of a royal family. His father was a chieftain of the Sakya clan. And Gautama grew up enjoying a life of luxury as a prince. In fact, his father did not want him ever uh, to see misery and suffering. And so he shielded him from that almost all of his young life. He secluded him from really experiencing or observing any human misery. But one day... His particular exploits took him beyond the guards, beyond those who would have otherwise been able to corral him. And he went outside of his father's palace and he began to travel. And as he traveled, he witnessed the effects of human suffering when he saw a number of people. He saw an old man that he had never seen before. He saw a leper. He saw a corpse. And he saw also a holy man or an ascetic man. And it really, really radically altered his perspective about suffering. He'd never really seen anything like that before. And so it really, really impacted him greatly. He realized, or at least from that which he'd been experiencing in the palace, that that was really a life of illusion. He really wanted to experience some things that were far beyond that which he had experienced up to that point. He was very, very disillusioned about what his father, the king, had brought to him, and he wanted to go out on his own. And so, after a time when he became an adult, he began a pilgrimage. And he was married, and he had a son named Rahula. And when Rahula was born, Gautama renounced his worldly life, and he began to pursue a quest for truth as a wandering monk. And he began to ask the questions that so many people ask. What is life? Where have I come from? Where am I going? Is there a higher power? What is this beyond our world? Is there anything beyond us? And for six or seven years, Gautama practiced many forms of extreme austerity. He would flagellate his body. He would, he would uh, come to a place where he would uh, uh, sleep on brambles on very, very hard surfaces so that he would not in any way experience a life of ease or comfort. He would often mortify the desires of his own body. It is, it is said of him that he would also abstain even from sitting down. He would, uh, instead of sitting, he would crouch on his heels for hours at a time to develop his level of concentration. He realized that this particular life 
Although it was granting him a great measure of solitude, of silence, of meditation, it really wasn't that which was giving him the truth. And he realized that his life as an ascetic was no greater value than his previous life had been as a prince. And so now he was in a a quandary. He was at a place where he'd seen the, the, the greatest that his life could offer, and he'd also seen the worst that his life could offer. And he wasn't satisfied with either one. This self-torture was vain, it was fruitless, and just as the life of his worldly pleasure had been. And so he, he uh, abandoned both, uh, this life of extreme pleasure or extreme austerity. And later, at a place called Gaia, Gautama sat at the foot of a particular fig tree, which is now commemorated as the Bodhi tree. And there's a place there now where people believe, of course, that it's a very, very holy site. And he meditated there until he became what he believed was enlightened. And he discovered what he later called, or those who sort of codified his writings, as the Four Noble Truths, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And it became the central tenets of his teaching and of all Buddhist philosophy. He became what is known as the Buddha which means the enlightened one. And he began to share his noble truths with with all who would receive his teachings. And two months after his so-called enlightenment, he gave his first sermon. And it was an event set in motion that we now know as Buddhism. It's called the Wheel of the Law, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, These are nothing more than the stages of someone comprehending the ultimate reality of the universe. And so he began to teach these things. And he taught them for a long time. In fact, for more than 40 years, Buddha was a teacher of the Four Noble Truths. He dedicated himself to his ministry until his death at a time where he was around 80 years old. And there were a number of men who followed him. A number of these followers called the Sangha, a Buddhist community community of beggar monks. Now, he didn't demand submission uh, to himself as a god. Uh, he simply wanted to be their teachers. And it may have been that he himself uh, would be uh, very, very hurt or uh, very, very surprised or shocked that people today would worship him as a god. But nonetheless, he's taught in this Buddha-like image that these four noble truths were, were to be followed by all. This Sangha, this group of beggar monks after Buddha passed away, continued to wander from village to village. They were sort of nomadic, but they continued to spread his doctrine. Uh, One of the main issues of these four noble truths is the matter of suffering. Throughout all of Buddhism, all that you can think of and try to deal with is this matter of suffering. And that's what he tried to do with these four noble truths. He tried to come to a place where he understood suffering as it needed to be understood. And so as this particular Buddhist following continued to grow, they began too to try to determine what is it about this suffering in our world that we can understand. How can we move beyond suffering? And they began to form their own beliefs. Some of them began to say, well, this is what we believe the Buddha taught. And others would say, no, this is what the Buddha taught. And ultimately, there were factions. There were uh, several different groups of people who began to determine uh, what they believed was the right kind of Buddhaic teaching. 
And they began to move in different kinds of communities, ultimately forming all around the world different monasteries. Even today, if you went to a particular Buddhist monastery, it wouldn't necessarily mean that that was a universally held Buddhist belief. They're very, very diverse in much of their teaching. You've heard, of course, of Zen Buddhism. You've heard maybe of Tibetan Buddhism, which is a a particular kind of teaching that has gained prominence because there have been a number of Hollywood stars like Richard Gere and others who have taken to this particular religion and made it very, very popular in the Hollywood crowd. Many, many vast differences between some of these groups. But yet, some of these teachings can be culled into a central whole, and I think we can understand them. After about the 3rd century B.C., There was a particular king, King Asoka, who embraced Buddhism after conquering most of India. And around the middle of the third century onward, Buddhism was at its height of acceptance. It became a fast-growing, fast-moving religion. It was during this time that Buddhism became a world religion. And we know it today as a world religion. We know it today as one of the great religions of the world. If someone were to say, what are the great religions of the world? We would, of course, say Christianity. We would say Judaism. We would say Buddhism. We would say Hinduism. And it is classically defined as one of the great religions of the world. Now, what are some of the beliefs about Buddhism? What are some of the things that they teach? Well, one of the things that you need to understand, if you're going to understand Buddhism, is how they purport to teach their doctrine. And their doctrine is known as Dharma. You might be interested to know that that particular name, which is sometimes given to some ladies, Dharma is the Buddhist word for doctrine. And since a systematic Buddhist theology was really not put put into written form until uh, apparently late, until maybe even four centuries after the Buddha's death, There were a number of these schisms that spread all of these teachings within different monasteries. They argued over the content of the Buddha's teaching. But ultimately, in Buddhism, the Dharma, according to all of them, is the doctrine, the truth taught by the Buddha, or what they believe is the Buddha's teaching. Now, there today is probably, among this Dharma, this doctrine of Buddhism, is probably no less than about 18 different schools of thought about this particular great religion. I'm just going to talk about two of them tonight because these are the two most prominent. One of them is the Tervata, Tervata, and the other is the Mahayana, the Mahayana. The Tervata is a religion of Buddhism or a sect within Buddhism that stands for the doctrine of the elders. And the other, Mahayana, is the great wheel or the great wheel of life. These are really the two major branches, although there are many and there are some that are gaining more prominence than others. But I want to talk a little bit about Tervata Buddhism tonight because it's said to be the most fundamental branch of Buddhism because it's preserved most of the original nature of Buddhism itself. Here's a little bit about what Tervata Buddhism stands for. They believe in a scripture. They have a collection of writings written in the Pali language, P-A-L-I. And it's a vernacular language that descended from Indian Sanskrit. 
And they believe in these Scriptures. They believe that these Scriptures, becoming known as the Polycanon, provided for the foundation of the Tervator beliefs and practices. And they believe that the Polycanon, this set of Scriptures, is an accurate account of what the Buddha taught. Now, the Tervata Buddhists revere Buddha as a great ethical teacher, but not as a god, as I mentioned before, as many of the Mahayanas do. And according to the Tervatans, only the Buddhist saints can attain ultimate deliverance, or we would know that very familiar term, nirvana. Only those who are Buddhist saints while the Mahayanas believe that there are regular saints or regular human beings who can indeed ultimately achieve this enlightenment. It may be delayed for a while, it may come at great cost, but ultimately this nirvana, this accumulated set of merits, can give them that enlightenment that they so desperately crave. Now, for a particular frame of reference in our world today, Tervata Buddhism is primarily thriving in Sri Lanka, Remember our pastor James Henrich traveled to Sri Lanka uh, a time back, and uh, that is experiencing a major resurgence, as well as many of the parts of Southeast Asia outside of India. So if you were to go to Sri Lanka or maybe some of these places in Southeast Asia, um, Laos, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, you might very well run into a Tervata Buddhist. There's a large migration, by the way, of Tervata Buddhists in uh, Cambodia, I mentioned, Laotians, other Southeast Asians. It now has a strong following in North America, and that's why I would want to focus in on that tonight, because that would be uh, one of those groups that might have a direct effect upon some of us. And also in major cities like Los Angeles and, interestingly enough, Seattle, Seattle, Washington. Now, there is another group of Buddhists called the Mahayana. And they taught that everyone can have faith in and devotion for the Buddha, not just saints, not just those who are the ultimate or elite lightened ones, but that everyone can have faith and devotion in the Buddha. They have love and compassion for all living beings. This particular form of Buddhism is sometimes regarded to be the northern school of Buddhism because it is dominant in Tibet and Mongolia, and China, and Korea, and Japan. So you can see in that far east area that we would know, all of those areas of the ancient Orient, we would see as the Mahayana kind of Buddhists. And those who are in the more southeast Asia area are the Tervata Buddhists. And so this is a very, very intricate and a very, very complex religion. I mentioned to you the four noble truths, and I want to talk a little bit about that because it is so very, very important for us to understand this matter of what Buddhism teaches in general. Now, I should say as a footnote here that there are those Tibetan Buddhists, and those particular Buddhists are very much different than from the other two that I mentioned. How many of you have heard of the name of the Dalai Lama? Sort of a... Uh, Funny name for us to know, but the Dalai Lama is the head of the Tibetan Buddhist movement. And he's very, very prominent because he does a lot of travel. And for us, we would see him on television. Uh, We would see books. If you would go into Walden Books or Barnes & Noble or something like that, and you would see the Dalai Lama speaking on particular issues. Sometimes uh, you would hear of Tibetan monks 
who have been massacred in a particular area for what they believe. They have a very, very austere lifestyle. They are in many ways ascetics. They land in those monkeries and they do a lot of meditation and they have been tremendously persecuted throughout the years. And that's why beginning in around 1949 and onwards, uh, you would have so many of them who would now receive great television and radio and media coverage about their suffering. And I think that's some way, in some ways why so many people would run to that kind of thing because they see the way they respond to this persecution. Uh, maybe Richard Gere and others have taken on their plight uh, because they believe that somehow their suffering engenders a great deal of respect and honor uh, for these people. This particular Dalai Lama is their spiritual leader. And if you were to listen, whether it's the Dalai Lama or the Trivedi Buddhists or the Mahayana Buddhists, you would find some regular teaching about them. The four noble truths. What is it about some of these four noble truths that are very, very important for us to know? Let me tell you a little bit about it because it's very, very interesting. Let me tell you just what they believe regarding these four noble truths. And then we're going to critique it from a biblical perspective. And I think it's very, very important that I want you to take your, your pen and your Bible in hand after a moment. And I want you to write down some of these passages. Because if you were to come across a Buddhist person, these are some of the passages that you would want to have in your mind as you would want to respond to them. And I'm going to go in some measure of order, having now talked about their origins and a little bit about their history about what they believe about a number of key concepts. And the first one is human suffering. Human suffering. First of all, the Buddhist position on human suffering is this. They believe that all human life is grievous. All human life is grievous. This is coming out of that overflow of ideas that the original Buddha had about suffering. They believe that all of life is grievous to a large degree. Secondly, they believe that ignorance and the desires of the senses lead to suffering. In other words, on the one hand, it's either ignorance about life that leads to suffering, or it's a wrong pursuit of the desires of your senses that lead to suffering. And then thirdly, deliverance from suffering can be achieved only through enlightenment. Which is this concept that I mentioned a moment ago about nirvana. Enlightenment. That's the only way that you can be delivered from this suffering. And then fourthly, enlightenment, nirvana, is attained by obeying the Buddhist ethic. By obeying the Buddhist ethic. And of course, that is the noble truths. The noble truths are all designed, and I'm not going to give you their names because I could give you their names by attempting myself to pronounce them and we'd never remember them. And to even give you the concepts about them wouldn't be as important as what they say practically about things like human suffering. We understand some of the things that we're going to go through from a biblical perspective. You'll already have in your mind the four noble truths, and so we'll look at them. Human suffering. Listen to what the Pali Canon, this is that set of inscripturated documents that they claim about their religion. Listen to what they say about human suffering. And then we're going to look at some passages of Scripture that help to critique it. Quote, 
This is the noble truth of sorrow. And this, of course, is one of the noble truths, the first one. This is the noble truth of sorrow. Birth is sorrow. Age is sorrow. Disease is sorrow. Death is sorrow. In short, all the five components of individuality is sorrow. Sounds like what they have is one Bible book, Ecclesiastes, and that's it. All of life is vanity. All of life is sorrow. All of life, as we would say in Southern California, is a colossal bummer. All of the things in life that we might be able to otherwise enjoy is really an illusion. It's all sorrow. It's all vanity. Quote, David Kalpahana in his Buddhist philosophy, a respected book on the subject, while realizing that there is no permanent or immutable entity called the self, we'll talk about that in a little bit, the Buddha also found that belief in such an entity led to further suffering. In other words, even if you did believe in the self, that there was a soul, a soul inside a person, even if you believed that, which Buddhists don't, that in and of itself would be further proof of suffering in our world. Belief in a permanent entity such as the Atman, which is the soul, often led to selfishness and egoism. This, for him, for the Buddha, was the root cause of craving and its attendant suffering. Unquote. In other words, even if you affirm that there was a soul in an individual, that soul, because of its selfishness and egoism, was all of the suffering that you could ever, uh, ever dream possible, and everything outside the soul is suffering as well. And so it's all a matter of suffering. And so with regard to human suffering, Buddhism has no answer. It has no answer for the issue of human suffering, except, of course, for someone who is reaching nirvana. Now, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about suffering? Because remember, in Tervedah Buddhism, they would have a construct, and it is one of the most popular forms of Buddhism around, that there's no nirvana for the run-of-the-mill person. In fact, there's no hope for the run-of-the-mill person. Only for the, the saintliest of the Buddhist monks within their religion can gain nirvana. Everybody else, that is an elusive doctrine that will never come to pass. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say uh, to the lowliest person? Well, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. This is, this is how you would respond to a Buddhist regarding human suffering. It's, a, of course, not everything that you would say about human suffering, but this might be a passage of Scripture that you would use to talk to them about what Christianity teaches regarding human suffering. Is it true that birth is sorrow, age is sorrow, disease is sorrow, death is sorrow? In short, in short all of life is in all of its components nothing but sorrow? With no hope? Well, Christianity says something different. In John chapter 16, verse 20, the Scripture says this, from the lips of Jesus Himself, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. In other words, there's a 
realization. There's a reality to sorrow. Jesus Himself affirms it. But, He says, the world will rejoice. You will grieve. Yes, there is sorrow in our world. You will have grief. But your grief will be turned into joy. And then He gives an illustration. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Can you relate to that, ladies? Because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And I've been a witness of that eight times over. My wife has gone through intense labor pains, but it is an amazing thing for me to see that when that little one is put upon her chest, she has joy unspeakable. Just after the pain, just after the labor, just after all of that anguish. And Jesus is right. She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. In other words, the joy overshadows all of the anguish that she experiences. And so he says, verse 22, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one, No one will take your joy away from you. Isn't that wonderful? Within Buddhism, there is no doctrine like this. There is no response to life like this. Yes, there's pain. Sometimes great pain. Sometimes excruciating pain. Sometimes long-lasting pain. But there's also joy. Joy at obedience. Joy at loving the Father. Joy at knowing God. Joy at being someone who's loved by God. Look at verse 27 of John 16. For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. It says in verse 32, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Yes, it's a reality. You will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Christianity has hope. Christianity has peace. Christianity has comfort. And you can go far past this elusive thing called nirvana. Far past. You can transcend all of the suffering of the world and come to a place of realizing that God has a plan. That He's sovereign. That He knows the end from the beginning. He has all things in His hand. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, and you'll see this same reality. This would be another good passage to share with a Buddhist friend or neighbor. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and if this isn't an encouragement to Christians right in the midst of human suffering, you know that Peter was written right in the midst of intense persecution. Maybe the very intense persecution of Nero himself. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the 
fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Isn't it amazing how the Scripture can use in juxtapositioning the idea of suffering and rejoicing in the same passage? It says it. It says even though there's a testing that comes upon you, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You are reviled for the name of Christ. You're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Verse 16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Look at chapter 5, verse 9, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's a response to suffering. It's not just some whimsical idea or some idea that's out of reach. And certainly, for some Buddhists, it's totally out of reach. You have to become a Buddhist monk in order to experience the enlightenment. There is an answer for human suffering, and Christians have that answer. And those are just a couple of passages which speak of it. How about another Buddhist theology, the human soul? I mentioned it a moment ago, the human soul. What do they believe about the human soul? Quote, Persons are a conglomeration of skandhas, elements and sense fields, devoid of a self or anything belonging to a self. They say very explicitly in their literature, we do not believe in the self or in the soul. Quote, Buddhism stands unique in the history of human thought in denying the existence of such a soul, self, or Atman. According to the teaching of the Buddha, the idea of self is an imaginary false belief which has no corresponding reality, and it produces harmful thoughts of me and mine, selfish desire, craving, attachment, hatred, ill will, conceit, pride, egoism, and other defilements, impurities, and problems." Unquote. In other words, what they're really trying to do is they're really trying to come to grips with the idea of suffering that they see in the world. And so what they do is they slide over to the other pendulum in such a way that they say, because there's only evil, because there's only suffering, only me and my and selfish desires and cravings and attachments and hatred and ill will and conceit and pride and egoism and defilements and impurities and all kinds of problems, here's the answer, deny the reality that the soul exists at all. And of course, that's a problem because we do have a soul. Everyone has a soul. And it's not the answer just to dismiss it as though it doesn't exist. It's not the answer to say, well, because of all these injustices in the world, because of all the suffering in the world, all of the evil, all of the defilements, all of the problems, let's just say it doesn't exist. Let's just say it's not really there. 
That's what I would call a healthy sense of escapism. And that's not Christianity. It may be Buddhism, but it's not Christianity. Listen to some of these passages. You may not have enough time to look them up. Psalm 42, 1-2. You know it well. As the deer pants for streams of water or for the water brooks, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, the Bible recognizes the reality of the soul. It, it, it doesn't dismiss the soul because of the evil and suffering in the world. It doesn't say it's, it's not a reality. It says it's a reality and also that it can be a redeemed reality. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, all of those things are true. Yes, Buddhism uh, might uh, oblige us in affirming the idea of egoism of pride, of selfishness, of suffering, of trials and temptations, yes. But the answer is not to swing in the pendulum the other direction on the extreme level and say, uh, in order to rid ourselves of these things and be truly enlightened, then we need to deny the very existence of the soul. No, we affirm the existence of the soul, but we also say the soul's in trouble. The soul needs an answer. And that answer is found in a soul panting for God, thirsting for God, for the living God. Psalm 62.5 Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. You see, the answer to the restless soul, the answer to the depraved soul, the answer to the suffering soul is to find rest in God alone. Psalm 62.5 That's the answer. You remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restores my what? Soul. He restores my soul. He takes out that soul that's anguishing, that soul that's sinning, that soul that, that's devilish. He takes that soul and He regenerates that soul so that that soul can be recreated anew in Christ Jesus. That's what He does. You remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-5? to 5? Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The reality of Christianity is there is a soul. And it is lost. And it is in a depraved condition. It is suffering. It is languishing because it has no answer for itself on a human level. But there is an answer, and that answer is Christ. And Christ regenerates that soul, and He creates within that soul new life. And that new life panders after God. That new life thirsts for God. That new life says there is an answer, and I can rejoice even when suffering is true, even when it's a part of my own life in the here and now. I have an answer even when my soul is suffering. What about emptiness? That's another major doctrine of Buddhism. Emptiness. They say, quote, intemperate, excuse me, impermanent and unstable are all conditioned things. Regard the world as void. You see what's happening? There's so much suffering, and there was so much suffering in that time in which the Buddha lived, and there's so much suffering because of so many third world problems and so many issues of the lack of 
of refinements, the lack of technology in so many of these places, certainly in those centuries, either hundreds of years before Christ and thousands of years afterwards. Yes, it's true that there is suffering. And it's true that those third world countries and those places where suffering is very, very tough, places in which we have very, very uh, difficult time responding and perceiving the kind of suffering they're going through. And yes, it's true that sometimes you can look at that and you can come up with a theology that says, well, all of this suffering, how can a God, how can someone who's good and righteous and just and fair? And it leads people to ask that question. I see all this suffering around me. I see all of this evil in my world. And maybe it's true that there is no higher power. Or if there is, there's no hope. There's no answer. And I create in my own human mind a a human philosophy that says, well, maybe the the world is just emptiness. Maybe there's a void. Uh, Maybe there's no true soul. And you begin to deny all of these things. You begin to replace them with other things uh, that seem to be better or seem to be an answer to the dilemma... to the dilemmas of life, and you say to yourself, maybe there are no other things, maybe everything is empty. Regard the world as void. There is nothingness, emptiness. Hinduism sometimes says the same thing, just emptiness. A voidness in our world. What does the Bible say? Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's always been around. He's always been the same. His character will never change. Isaiah 55.11 And the Lord says, So is My Word that goes forth from My mouth. It will not return to Me empty or void, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. In other words, there's control in the world. There's not just emptiness. There's not just a void. There's not just vanity. I love this one. Ephesians 4.10 Jesus Christ, it says, who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the void. To fill the whole universe. That's why the Bible says that Jesus Christ and God the Father are our all in all. They they fill all of life. There's meaning, there's purpose, there's a design, there's a plan. I don't regard the world as void. I regard the world as Jesus Christ filling the world, filling the whole universe. This is, this is in direct conflict with Buddhist teaching. This is Christianity. This is why these religions are at opposite poles from each other. And even if one were to somehow experience nirvana, enlightenment, to fill the void, it's an empty and baseless thing. What about salvation? This is what Buddhists teach about salvation. Be lamps, this is a quote, this is from that Pali canon, be lamps unto yourselves, be a refuge unto yourselves. Do not turn to any external refuge. Work out your own salvation with diligence. You see the hollow nature of that? Do you see a a work that will never be truly accomplished nor fully accomplished? 
Be lamps unto yourselves. Be a refuge unto yourselves. Do not turn to an external refuge. Another quote, Abadai Sattva resolves. The one who's enlightened, I take upon myself the burden of all suffering. It's all on me. It's all on me to try to understand it. It's all on me to try to grapple with it. And I don't turn to any external refuge. I'm a lamp unto myself. I'm a refuge for myself. Is that Christianity? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one can boast. None of us are a lamp unto ourself. None of us can find a refuge within ourselves. The fact we're known, if we perceive ourselves rightly, we better run from ourselves. We're not a refuge unto ourselves. We need to work away from ourselves, not unto ourselves. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely this Jesus Christ took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Our refuge is in Christ. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, John says, 1 John 2. He is the righteous one, Jesus Christ. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Jesus Christ is our refuge. He's our, our atoning sacrifice. He's the one that we run to. We don't run to ourselves. This is further what Tibetan Buddhism says. And when you're in the company of your master, and I assume by that that they may mean your ultimate master, do not look for faults and virtues, good and bad. If you do, you'll see him as a mass of faults. Just practice clarity of mind and exert yourselves, unquote. Who wants to serve a master like that? You know what that is? That's really what Paul says in Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ are all the fullness of deity in bodily form. What do they think about God? Now, who is this master of Buddhism? Quote, Yet you, the Buddha, preach compassion for all beings, O oh, you God above the gods. You see, there are some Buddhists who believe that the Buddha himself is a God. Let us therefore worship you, the chief and best of men, worthy of our worship. That's what the Mahayana Buddhists believe. That he, in fact, is deity. But what does Exodus chapter 20 say? And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There is no other God. There is no God of Buddha. There is no Taoistic God. 
Taoism, which is another Far Eastern religion. Uh, there is no uh, Confucian kind of God. Uh, there is no teaching like that that can rival the God of the Bible because He is solely God Himself. The eternal God. I love Deuteronomy 33.27. The Lord, the God, the eternal God is your refuge. Quote, to go to Him, the Buddha, for refuge, to praise and to honor Him, to abide in His religion, that is fit for those with sense. The only protector, He is without faults or their residues. The all-knowing, He has all virtues and that without fail. Now, how can that be reconciled with the other master? I don't know. But ultimately, that's what Mahayana Buddhists believe. And they would say that Buddha himself, a man, is the one for whom we run for refuge. By the enjoyment of all desires to which one devotes oneself just as one pleases, it is by such practice as that one may speedily gain Buddhahood. With the enjoyment of all desires to which one devotes oneself just as one pleases in union with one's chosen divinity, one worships oneself, the Supreme One. So now you not only have worshiping Buddha as God, but worshiping yourself as God. You are your own chosen divinity. One worships oneself, the Supreme One. The Bible says in Acts 3.14, Peter calling Jesus the Holy and Righteous One. He's the only Holy One. He's the only Righteous One. He's the only Supreme One. It's not in ourselves, that's for sure. It's certainly not in Buddha. They even say this, quote, The nameless, with a capital N, the nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. Ultimately, maybe that means if there is someone that we look to who is the origin or the maker of heaven and earth, he's nameless. We don't know him. We don't know who he is. But we know who He is, don't we? He's the God of the Bible. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. God told Moses to tell the Israelites that His name is, I am who I am. I am the self-existent One. This is My name forever. The name by which I'm to be remembered from generation to generation. This is, this is the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is that nameless one of Buddhism. Jesus Christ is the name above every name. When I was looking to study some of these things regarding Buddhism, as I'm many times want to do, go to some bookstore somewhere in some obscure place and see what I can see. And in one of my travels, I found an excellent book called Sharing Christ in the Tibetan Buddhist World. And of course, I just had to have it, so I bought it. And this is a wonderful, wonderful conclusion. Listen to what it says. Take the case of John and Vivian, who are Christian workers in a city in Central Asia. They decide to share their faith with a Tibetan Lama who lives in their neighborhood. 
their meeting might go something like this. After greeting the Lama with a suitable present, John and Vivian tell their story of an infinite personal God who made the world and everything in it. They speak of man's bondage to sin and death and tell the Lama how God sent His Son to suffer and to die for man's redemption. John explains that everyone who turns from sin and believes in Christ can receive God's salvation as a free gift. Saved by the blood of Christ, the sinner can enjoy eternal life in fellowship with God. The Lama is baffled and offended by such a message. And only his monastic detachment keeps his annoyance from showing. As he explains it to his followers later, the foreign visitors made some very strange statements. First, they spoke of Buddha, his body, and his word creating the world. This makes no sense since Buddha taught that the world had no beginning and and was not made by anybody. Actually, Vivian and John had used a Tibetan word for God, which usually means Buddha. They forgot to explain what they meant by it. To a Tibetan, this word means Buddha, his body and his teaching. Second, these strange visitors said that all men were sinners, which is plainly not so since Tibetan lamas have no sin. The lama is right in his thinking he canceled all his sins long ago through the merit of his religious practices. John and Vivian had used the Tibetan word for sin, which means something that is a moral fault, but has nothing to do with offense against a holy and righteous God. Thirdly, John and Vivian spoke of God having a son, which the Lama was completely unable to understand. Perhaps they meant that God came to earth in a mystical body, much as all Lamas do. Or maybe he was a Bhattai Sattva, or a reincarnated saint. But in that case, why had God's son suffered so much? Had he committed great sins in his previous lives? How could he believe in a religion that was based upon such suffering? Again, the foreigner spoke of salvation as a free gift. Uh, But why follow this strange path when anyone can earn liberation through the practice of religion? Clearly, the Lama thought, the end of the Buddhist path and the end of the Christian path are one and the same. Vivian and John had used the Tibetan word for salvation without explaining what they meant. To a Tibetan Buddhist, this word means liberation from rebirth. In effect, they had told the Lama that he could be delivered from rebirth by believing in Christ. As Vivian and John left the Lama, they gave him a copy of the Tibetan Bible, which they urged him to read. When the Lama read it, he was shocked to find detailed instructions about the killing of animals, instructions for God's chosen people to go to war, and a God who was described as angry and jealous. When the Lama read about the life of Jesus, he found that it was the head Lamas who condemned Jesus to death. As the Lama read the Gospels, he realized that the Christians based their religion on a blood sacrifice which he found deeply offensive. The shedding of blood for religious purposes had ended long ago in the Tibetan Buddhist world. The Lama decided that he could never follow such a strange religion and closed his new Bible for the last time. His two Christian visitors later heard of his comments and urged their friends to pray for the Lama's hardness of heart. While the Lama's heart may have been hard, Clearly, he did not have a fair chance to understand the message that Vivian and John tried so hard to present. The story of God's love in Christ ran afoul of double meanings and cultural taboos that made nonsense of the gospel. This need not happen. With the right kind of preparation and training, Christians can present their message in terms that Tibetan Buddhists can easily understand.
He's right. There's every opportunity to study and know truly what Buddhists do believe. If there are 558,000 in North America, then surely one or two of them are going to someday come across your path. What do you believe about Christianity? How can you defend your faith as related to what they believe? How can you properly define the terms that you use and then relate those terms to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't be surprised if at some point in the near future, a Buddhist comes to you and you'll be called then to defend your faith. Let's pray. Father, I hope that this challenge tonight of really just a small sampling of what Buddhism believes, how we relate to it as Christians, has been a spur, a springboard to to knowing more of what this religion believes, of what they say they affirm. And Father, I thank You for the opportunity to to study and know many of the religions around the world as we all ought to do with the globe shrinking as it has been with media and technology. We find out so much more readily now how people live and what their cultures are like and what they believe. And Father, we confess that it's frightening at times. Sometimes it's intimidating. Much of the time it's a great challenge to find the time to study and learn about these matters. But Lord, I pray that You would, as we defend our faith in our own communities, and as we go onto a, an airplane and sit next to someone who may say, I'm a Buddhist or... I'm a Hindu, or I'm a Jehovah's Witness, or I'm a Mormon. That we would be able to know something. And Lord, even if we weren't able to know about their religion, may we know our own religion intimately. May we know our own Bibles. May we be able to go to these passages and Speak about who our God is. And may we trust You with the results. May we be able to to come to a place of being excited about our faith. Willing to share it. Even under such great opposition. If we were to talk to someone about what they believed. if, If they were to tell us that they were a Buddhist. How would we respond to them? Would we be able to to know our terms, to understand some measure of their culture. Lord, we need to. And You've given us at least one evening in which to have some measure of that understanding. And I pray that those who are here, including myself, would continue to study and learn and read so that we might be showing ourselves as one ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. 
so that you might use the message of your glorious gospel so that it might penetrate the heart of a Buddhist and bring him to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.